Well, if you would, uh, take out your Bible and let's turn to Genesis chapter 15. And we will be reading and studying uh, this whole chapter. Genesis chapter 15. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I am to possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. And I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kesedites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers, the flower falls, for the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray now, God, for the preaching of your word. Be with this, your servant. Help us to learn and understand and grow as this text is explained and applied. We pray that you would rule and overrule in all these matters. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When God had called Abram to leave Ur, 
to go to the land of Canaan, it was not suggested that if he would obey, then he would be blessed. The promise was that he would be made a great nation and be greatly blessed. Abram was simply charged to go. God was going to graciously bless Abram with offspring and with the land so that all the nations might be blessed. Abram was to go. Nowhere in any of the promises made so far has there even been a suggestion of a contract being made between two parties. Uh, Abram was not required to be perfectly obedient to any terms. In fact, it is God who has obligated himself to do what he was going to do. The covenant promises that he was making to Abram were entirely of grace. Now this concept of grace is important for us if you want to understand Christian theology. And the Apostle Paul argues in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Peter, uh, stood, standing among the brothers at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, speaking of the Gentile believers, said this, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The covenant arrangement along with the attendant blessings being poured out on the patriarch has come fully from the grace and mercy of the divine creator. So this passage before us in Genesis chapter 15 is perhaps one of the most important in terms of outlining this grace. For it officially inaugurates God's covenant with Abraham as another administration of the covenant of grace. So it's here that God is dealing with man and is formalizing with Abram, along with his offspring, which ultimately leads to the coming of the Redeemer, the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised seed. And the provisions of the covenant, just as had been the case with all the promises, will be taken up wholly by God Himself. God is doing this out of His own mere good pleasure, by His own grace. And so we begin our study in in Genesis 15 with verse 1. It begins this way, it says, After these things... After these things. Now, what this refers to, of course, is chapter 14, which we looked at last time. So there's some time had passed after Abram's victory over the Eastern Alliance. These, these kings would come, and then Abraham had to go and rescue lots, and in doing so, ends up rescuing uh, all the, the kings of the valley and all of their things also. May we recall that Abram, after that victory, Abram confesses his reliance on the Lord in response to the demands of the king of Sodom. Remember, Sodom comes out, or the king of Sodom comes out, and he demands some things of Abram. You know, you keep the goods, just give him my people back. 
But the patriarch responds by faith in the Lord. His reliance was on the Lord, not on men. And so here, the patriarch, Abram, receives a vision from the Lord. In, where there are two divine speeches, which build upon the earlier promises of these, these particularly the two, land, the, the two promises of land and offspring. And this will be expanded and ratified. So the word of the Lord coming to Abram introduces him not only as the patriarch, but he's also a prophet. Abram is also a prophet. He's a prophet of the Lord. In fact, what is implied here is made more clear in Genesis chapter 20 and also Psalm 105, which clearly state Abraham is a prophet. And so the Lord comes to to Abram in a vision and he says this. He begins with this, fear not. Fear not. Now the language of fear not uh, is somewhat reminiscent of how a prophet might speak to a great king prior to a great victory. Hey, don't worry. Don't worry, the victory is yours. But here, God is urging Abram to not be afraid because all of the divine promises that he's been making will come to pass. Now, we might ask, well, why would Abram be afraid anyway? I mean, God has been dealing with him already for some time. Has God not promised him great things? What might Abram uh, fear? Well, for one thing, there is a proper fear associated with any visit from the Lord. God visiting any of his creatures ought to strike great terror into us. But God's exhortation to Abram here is for him to be at peace in his heart. Because the Lord himself is the foundation of his security. In other words, Abram was to rest in the providence of God. Abram was a man of faith, and this is sure, but he did struggle with doubts. We've seen that already. We'll see more of this as we see the, the faith of Abraham sort of played out in, the, in Scripture before us. We, we can see how he struggles at, at points. He has doubts. God has promised great things to him, but at this point, there was little to be shown for it. He still didn't have offspring, And he still didn't possess the land. Abram's doubts can be more plainly seen in the complaints he provides in verses 2 and 3. Now it is fitting that that then that God begins his vision and this covenant ratification with comfort. He begins by comforting his servant, Abraham. Abram needed to be set at ease. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram needs to remember that it is God who is his shield and his defender. It is God who is making these great promises. And since this is the case, Abram would be secure in the protective armor of God. God was going to take care of him. He just needed to trust him. And his reward... Abram's reward would be very great. Now, what is this reward? What is this reward? Well, land and offspring. But ultimately, Abram's reward is the same as our reward. It's God 
himself. God is the great reward. Abram was to find his satisfaction and his rest in the great reward. That is the Lord God himself. And because of the relationship that God has with his servant, Abram can take courage. Again, this is of grace. This is God's grace being poured out on this servant of the Lord. And this is why you and I can also take courage because of God's grace. The Lord is our defender. The Lord is our shield as well. The Lord is not only a reward, but an exceedingly great reward. In Him, you and I ought to find our contentment. Our confidence is in the Lord, not in ourselves. When we find our rest in Him, we cannot be but full of joy and contentment as God is our protection. God is our shield. God is our fullness. How can we find ourselves to be truly miserable in this life if we are fully persuaded that our life is protected by God? If we understand that God is our defender, why would we be anxious about anything? If we believe that God is for us, that God is on our side, and that He is gracious to us, that God has covenanted with us in Christ, then what could possibly be the basis of any anxiety, any fear that we have? And yet, don't we have anxieties and fears? What evil in this world should trouble us at all if God is our defender and our shield? This, of course, does not mean that the Christian will be free from fear or from the trials of this life. Far from that. But what it does mean is that when the storms of life come, our hearts ought to be calmed and find our rest in our Savior. For as Calvin put it, the defense of God is greater than all dangers, so faith triumphs over fear. Now, Abram does have fears. And some of these are well-founded fears, just like some of the fears you have are well-founded. But his trust was to be in the Lord, for the Lord is his defender and his shield. And here again we see some of Abram's fears revealed. Uh, Look at, starting in verse 3. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. I don't have any children, Lord. You said I'm supposed to have offspring, but I mean, I'm kind of getting up there in age here. Literally, he calls them Master Yahweh. He calls the Lord his master. This is a rare title for God used when, he's, when, when pleading with him. Well, what will you give me, Lord? He asks. God has already blessed him with numerous assets. We've already seen uh, how Abram has has just an absolute abundance of of livestock and money and goods, right? He has all of these things. Uh, He has been given so much in terms of riches, but so far, no children. Abram's journey through life, walking with the Lord, has been filled with abundance, but God's promise of a seed has, as of yet, been unfulfilled. You can understand why Abram's feeling a little nervous. 
His only heir is Eliezer of Damascus, one of his servants. Abram was advanced in years. And so, in his mind, his race is coming to its completion. He's at the end of his life. He's contemplating, what's going to happen when I'm gone? God, you you promised these things. I, I believe you, but I don't see it. Doesn't this happen to us, too? Lord, you, you say the, these things are true, but I, I'm not experiencing this in my life. I don't, I don't, I understand in, in concept, but I, I don't see it in reality, necessarily. Since Abram had no children, one of his servants would seem to be the only logical choice. But this member of his household was a foreigner, an alien to the covenant promises. He was not part of the covenant people. Abram, the man of faith, is having a crisis of faith. But God come through. Is, is God going to come through on these promises? Is He going to actually do these things He said He's going to do? Was He going to leave His inheritance to a foreigner? Abram followed the Lord faithfully. He had been greatly blessed, but he still had no heir of his own. We can see why God begins with comfort. Fear not, Abram. Fear not. The Lord answers Abram's concerns emphatically. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came. Abram was going to need to wait for the birth of this child. But it was going to happen. God says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Listen, Eliezer isn't even named here, but he's not it. He's not the one. This is, in fact, literally, it's this one is not the heir. Your own son is the heir. Your own offspring... And patience and waiting on the Lord to make good His promises. This is the substance of faith. Trusting and waiting on the Lord. Are we not too waiting on the Lord to bring our salvation to completion on the last day? The day of the Lord. Aren't you waiting for that? You, you haven't seen the Lord come yet, have you? Yet you trust that the Lord will come for you. That you will be raised again on that last day. You trust that, don't you? That's by faith, not by sight. We too have to wait on the Lord. Just as Abram had to wait on the Lord. Abram was going to have to wait patiently for the birth of his son. But Sarai... She's still barren. And neither one of them are getting any younger. Abram's faith seemed to be faltering. You, you, you can relate to this, can't you? Oh, my, my faith is about to fall apart because, you know, all of these things. Abram needs to be comforted by the Lord, which the Lord does for us, doesn't he? By His Spirit, He comforts us. As our faith falters, We're called to be patient. And so God brings Abram outside. And he speaks really remarkable words. 
Abram's, think about this, right? Abram's faith is, is falling apart and God says, come outside, I want to show you something. Verse 5, look toward the heaven. Look toward the heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Not only would Abram have a son, he would have a multitude of descendants, multitude upon multitude, as much as the stars in the heavens, if you could actually count them. Now, of course, we know in modern day people have been able to count them, but if you just, with your naked eye, go out and try to count the stars, I'm going to tell you a little secret. It can't be done. You can't do it. You can't count the stars with the naked eye without the you know, help of computers and stuff. Abram was to have a multitude of descendants. This promise is, again, like the previous one given in chapter 13, where he was told that his offspring would be as the dust of the earth. Again, the idea is multitude upon multitude people. This is not a small number. Uh, The visual illustration of the stars in the sky uh, corresponds with the impossibility of counting them all. The purpose of the stars, though, is more than just to illustrate the multitudes of his descendants. As Abram goes outside, he was also caused to contemplate this truth. Could not the God who created this vast universe and all this in it not also provide for me one son? If God made all those stars, if God made all that there is, couldn't Isn't it in his power to provide me just that one son? In this way, Abram is comforted, isn't he? For there is nothing which is impossible with God. In fact, this is the same thought as expressed to Mary by the angel of the Lord when she was told that she, a virgin, would bear a son and that her cousin Elizabeth, a woman in a similar situation to Sarai, was with child. Where the response to her was this in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And so what is Abram's response? As as he's confronted with, again, the promises of God, it says this, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram responded with faith. He trusted the Lord. Abram heard God's promises of future blessings, namely that he would indeed have an offspring and that his, in his personal posture was to trust Him. He believed God would fulfill all that He said. And in turn... As he responds in faith, God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham may have had many doubts, but all of that is extinguished when the word of the Lord comes to him. And the Apostle Paul, connecting uh, or uh, commenting on this passage in Romans chapter four, says this: He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead. This is the comment about you know, hey, I'm not getting younger. Since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God was going to do it. This, Paul says in verse 22, is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. Faith, then, is taking God at His word. Believing what He says is true and resting in that fact. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The recognition of Abram's faith here should not lead us to think that this was the initiation of his faith. This is not where his faith began. Now, we've already seen this in our study. Abram has had faith all along. He believed God when he left Ur. He has been strong at times, and he has been weak at times in his faith. But he has already responded to God's call in his life. What we are seeing here is an example of growing and strengthening of his faith as he gives glory to God for the promises that have been made. He is walking by faith. He's convinced that what God has said is true. Though he has been discouraged, he's discouraged because he doesn't have an heir yet. His faith being counted as righteousness, though, is an acknowledgement that Abram was continuing to believe and that that faith, that trust in God, was valued by God as his righteousness. Abram was being justified by God. He was being justified by faith. In the God who justifies. And so here, it is that God now inaugurates his arrangement with Abram, beginning in verse 7, as Abram has now expressed faith, and his faith, his walking in faith, his, his acting in righteousness has been accounted to him as righteousness. It is here that the Lord cuts a covenant with him. And that's really, literally, the language the cutting of a covenant. Now, the legal language begins with a historic prologue, which names the parties to the covenant. Here, God identifies Himself as the one making the covenant, and He gives the grounds for initiating it, namely, that He, the Lord, has brought Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and is gifting that land for him to possess. But this prompts a question, a distressing question from Abram. Remember, he's the man of faith. And and he believes God has been accounted as righteousness, but he still has this distressing question, Oh Lord, how am I to know that I'm to possess it? Abram believes the word of the Lord. We've already seen this, but he needs assurance. Some kind of tangible evidence. God will respond by the presentation of a formal treaty. Literally, the cutting of a covenant, which will include the passing of the torch. God gives Abram a procedure which requires certain animals. Uh, verse 9. A heifer, three years old. A female goat, three years old. A ram, three years old. A turtle dove and a young pigeon. So he's to take, he's to take these animals. Now, although sacrifice is probably not in view, uh, these are all species of animals which could be offered on the altar of the Lord. These were appropriate sacrificial animals. And so Abram was to bring them, and as he does, he, he cuts them in half, and he lays them each over against the other, with the exception of the birds, 
which are not cut in half because of their small size. Now, the arrangement of the animals, if you could imagine, form a passageway. Okay? So imagine, uh, perhaps, this aisle where you have animals on each side and there's a, a place to walk through the middle of them. Okay? That's the picture. And so Abram arranges them this way. And so what is happening here is the cutting of the covenant. It's a similar procedure which is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 34. When a, when a, uh, and, and when a, greater, uh, a greater one cuts a covenant with a lesser one, what would happen is that after the animal parts were arranged, the lesser was to walk between them. So if you have, a, say, a great king, a lesser king, and you have this arrangement made, the lesser king would have to walk through the parts of the animals. And here's the, here's the reason. If they were to transgress the terms of the covenant, if they did not hold, uphold their part of the covenant, that they would be made like the animal parts. Dead and cut up. They would be destroyed. They would be split in two, as it were. And so the threat of death awaited those who broke the covenant, like the gruesome end to the animals which they walked through. Imagine this would be a a very bloody and messy arrangement being made. And and, and it's a very apt picture, right? If you're the lesser king walking through that, you don't want to end up like this. You really, you get it. Abram understood well the procedure, such that he didn't require any instruction. You'll notice in the text, it doesn't doesn't say anything about, hey, Abram, here's what you need to do. He just does it. This was the custom of the day. At this point, the narrative breaks off for a moment and describes birds of prey coming, which have been attracted to the meat of the slaughter, and they attempt to devour the flesh, which then forces Abram to drive them away. Now, this seems like an aside, but it's actually adding somewhat to the threat. For the Lord is promising that those who violate the covenant will have birds feeding on their dead flesh. And so Abram symbolically defends his promised inheritance against the foreign attackers. He drives the birds away. It should also be pointed out, That though the Christian enjoys the protection of God, this does not mean that we will not be attacked. For Satan in the world will never stop causing God's people trouble. Just as the birds attack the sacrifices of Abram, we too may come under the attacks of the world. And so there are times when we too will need to shoo the birds away, as it were. Now, verse 12. As the sun begins to set, there's a deep and dreadful darkness which falls upon Abram. Now some have wondered, how could the sun go down when earlier Abram was shown stars in the sky? You might have wondered that if you read it this week. You thought, huh, how is it that he was shown the stars in the sky and suddenly now the sun's going down? Well, this is really not, does not pose a problem unless you assume that this was all one continuous scene. It should be kept in mind that it would have taken some time for Abram to prepare all the animals and to arrange them as he does. And so what we have here in verse 12 is really the second encounter of Abram and the Lord. And so, 
There is this eerie scene of increasing darkness. The text says dreadful and great darkness. This matches the gloominess which is experienced by Israel in their sojourning in Egypt as they're taken into bondage and their fortunes seem to have dwindled. And there's a deep sleep which Abram experiences, a, a heavy sleep. And it's connected to the divine revelation, but it serves another purpose, actually. Abram going into a deep sleep would ensure that he did not walk through the carcasses himself. God was going to do this. And so as the darkness descends, Abram asks, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? How am I to know? And here's how he is to know. Verse 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. It will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Abram's anxiety was to be laid to rest concerning the land. He can know for certain in a summary of what is to take place concerning the nation which is to come after him. Now, at first, this doesn't seem terribly bright. In fact, this is downright dreary, isn't it? You're going to know you're going to possess the land because, well, those who come after you, they're going to suffer for 400 years and be in bondage. Aren't you really excited about that, Abram? His offspring will be sojourners in a land that doesn't belong to them. They will be afflicted. They will be slaves for 400 years. Now, of course, this describes their time in Egypt. But God will bring judgment on that nation, and the people will come out with great possessions. And the fulfillment of this is seen in Exodus chapter 12, where the people of Israel, just as they're leaving Egypt, they ask the Egyptians for silver and gold and clothing... And the Lord gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. <laughs> Could you give us all your stuff as we leave your nation? Sure, please, take it all. Just leave. Exodus twelve thirty six says this, Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Isn't that awesome? As they leave Egypt, they plundered those who had held them captive previously. Now, of course, Abram was not a light witness of these things. He was, he's receiving the promise of these things. He would, but he would die at a good old age. He would die in peace. It would be his descendants who will experience these things. But as they leave bondage, his people will return to the land of Canaan in the fourth generation, and they will conquer it, and they will take possession of it. Now, what is striking is that when Moses wrote this, remember, this is being written during the wilderness wanderings. When Moses wrote this down in Genesis, the conquest of the land had not yet occurred. They hadn't done this yet. And so the original audience would be reading and say, this is what was promised to Abram? This is what's going to happen? Yes. Now we, of course, have to be able to look back and see it already it happened. But it hadn't happened yet at this point. The conquest hadn't taken place until after Moses had died, in the days of Joshua. And so there was, even for that generation, a delay still in the inheritance of the land. And the reason given is in verse 16. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
Now, the meaning of who the Amorites are fluctuates. Their Amorites are used in various places. Sometimes it refers to the entirety of Canaan. Uh, sometimes it refers to a certain group of people. Uh, we've already seen Abram's Amorite ally, Mamre. Right? So he was a, he was a Amorite who seemed, or a, a Ammonite who seemed like a pretty good fellow. Helped out Abram. But the prophecy implies that the Israelites would be used by God to deal with the sin of the Amorites. And over the course of time, over that 400 year period of time, there was going to be an increase in moral decay in the land of Canaan. There was going to, they were going to get worse. But the delay in God's judgment against the Amorites also expresses the Lord's forbearance toward the nations. That delay in God's dealings with the world still is the case today, isn't it? God is, is not God forbearing with the nations in our own day. And why does He do this? Because we're proclaiming the gospel that many would come to saving faith in Christ. So God is patient towards those who would come to repentance and faith, isn't He? As the Lord is speaking... The sun goes down. Darkness comes. And suddenly uh, we read that there's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch which then passes through the laid out animal parts. This symbolized the presence of God. A fire pot in Hebrew was used to bake bread or to roast grain. It's a smoking furnace and a torch is used to speak of divine judgment against God's enemies and the awesome and unsettling presence of the Lord. So God in all His glory, in His awesome power, veiled with smoke as it were, passes through the pieces of of these animals which have been laid out. In this way God has cut His covenant with Abram. The divided animals, the passing through the pieces results in the making and establishment of the covenant, the covenant of grace. And by passing through the divided animals, the participants uh, pledge themselves to life and death. These actions establish uh, what multiple authors call an oath of self-maledication. That is to say that any participant who breaks this covenant They were under the curse of death, just as the torn animals were. But notice, who are the participants on this night as this covenant is established? It is God, and it is God alone. Remember, Abram was asleep. God takes upon himself all the obligations of the covenant. This is an example of his awesome grace. Abram and all those with a like faith bring nothing to the table. We, we don't bring anything. We don't come with our own righteousness. I'm a pretty swell guy, God. That's why I get, I get in heaven, right? I'm in the kingdom because I'm a, I'm a good person. I do, I do more good things than Benoit. You bring nothing but the sin which needs to be justified. We bring nothing to the table, but we do enjoy the blessings of the promises, don't we? We get all of the, all of the blessings poured on us, undeserving sinners that we are. 
And so here, God, the creator of the universe, has bound himself to man, his creature, by a solemn blood oath. That which which had been promised to Abram would come to pass. He has promised, and he has sealed that promise with a threat against himself. God has taken upon himself the curse of death. This is actually quite astonishing. It is a radical departure from how this arrangement would play out among the other nations. And finally, the Lord presents the dual promises of descendants and the land as a divine covenant, promising land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then there's an outline of ten different people groups. And so here, outlined, are two sets of borders for the land. There's a geographic boundary and an ethnographic boundary. Now, at its height, under David and Solomon, Israel exercised political and economic control up to the Euphrates. But they did not even attempt to dispossess the people beyond the geographic borders of Canaan. which Those match up with the ethnographic boundaries of the land. So there's actually a difference between the boundaries that are listed here. The geographic boundaries are much larger and may represent an ideal or at least a level of influence. But Israel was to take her rightful place among the great nations of the Near East. But the spiritual significance of that nation was to be far, far greater. Just as Mount Zion was not the highest mountain in the region, wasn't even close to being the highest mountain. And yet, because of its spiritual significance as the mountain of God, it is the highest in the world. Mount Zion is the mountain of the Lord. And so the physical reality of the nation was much smaller than the spiritual significance of the nation. Its borders are much greater This is true in the Christian faith, is it not? The borders of the Christian faith isn't some nation of land. It's the whole world. The whole world belongs to Christ. The whole kingdom is His. This covenant with Abraham, as was mentioned, is a further administration of the covenant of grace, which we first were introduced to In the very beginning, immediately after the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. In this covenant, God is making promises with full intention of sovereignly bringing them to pass. God takes upon himself the threats and the curses of the arrangement. God is, is swearing to bring it to pass because there's no one greater than himself to swear by. What does this mean? It means it is sure. It will come to pass. God's grace is certain. And you and I can live in confidence in His Word. What God has spoken to us, we can live in confidence by. This is true. This covenant which uh, made with Abraham was God's committing Himself to the patriarch and to the nation which was to come after Him with an aim of entering into the scene Himself in the person of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He Himself would take on the curse 
that you and I might have life. These covenant commitments are also, in many, in one, in one sense, they're one-way covenants. It's God who's making the arrangement. It's God who is taking on the curse, not us. God took upon Himself the full weight of the promises and their fulfillment. He took the curses. The covenant of grace is foundational to our understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith. Abraham was an imperfect man. This, we've already seen this. This is very clear to us. Abraham had many failings, just like you and I have many failings. He was sinful in many ways, and yet he was made righteous by faith. The faith of Abraham, the apostles point out, is a framework for our faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God and the Son of Man who died and rose again. This is faith which God credits to us as righteousness, as we trust and rest in Him alone. And by faith, the Christian is to walk. We're to walk by faith. Abraham had received assurances that he would indeed inherit the land and have offspring, and this came through the formalizing of the covenant. Right? The assurances he get is God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to swear by walking through these animals. And you know that this is going to happen because all of the curses God has taken on Himself. As God's people, we too live in covenant with God. God has promised His salvation as a free gift by faith. We have been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment and a guarantee of our inheritance. And we've been given covenant signs. We've been given the Lord's Supper and Baptism. In each of the sacraments, there's a reminder of the benefits we have in Christ. Washing and regeneration and renewal. Walking in newness of life. Continual growth in grace through the sacrifice of Christ. A nourishing and a strengthening of our faith. These signs remind the followers of Christ of the hope that we have in Him. God is faithful to His promises. He will bring about all that He said He will do. We have the privilege of being reminded of that weekly, daily. Abraham believed God, and we must also. God remains faithful even as we are faithless. And yet, walking by faith is also a call to walking in obedience. If we believe God's promises, then we also would seek to obey His word. And when we fail, we seek the Lord in repentance with the full assurance that our sins have been forgiven. God's covenant will stand because it's not based on our faithfulness. It's based on God's faithfulness. And in this, we are very grateful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises that you have made in your word. The, the promises here made to Abraham, but the promises which are seen throughout your word, that you have spoken that you are saving your people through Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace through faith. This is a gift from you. All we pray that you would help us to walk by faith that we would live lives of obedience to your word, that we would believe your word. And then when, and, and when we fail, 
And we do. That you forgive us. That you assure us that you've given us signs and seals to consistently remind us of the work of Jesus Christ. That his work at the cross is finished. That he himself took the curse of death. That we may have life. That we have resurrected life in him. We thank you, God, for your promises. We pray. We thank you for their fulfillment. Help us to walk in newness of life by faith in, in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.